Let's return to the book of First Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're just going to pick up where we left off uh, as we have been working through this book together as a church family. First Thessalonians chapter 4, and if you've been with us for the last several messages, you know there have been several just personal words here as Paul, the one that planted this church in Thessalonica, has encouraged the people. He's, he's also identified how they have persevered through affliction. Now, beginning in chapter 4, our book here is going to turn a little bit, and it's going to go towards, I'll call it what John Stott said, Christian ethics. So if we look at this little diagram, once a person has embraced the gospel and has been saved of their sins, God gives them the Holy Spirit, he gives them the grace to be able to recover, to be able to go back to God's design. So when we talk about the Christian life, it could be that today this message is going to be sound a little legalistic. Like, man, you're, you seem to be putting a lot of emphasis on how you are to respond as a Christian. Well, that is not here in order to get right with God through the gospel. That is as a result of embracing the gospel, receiving God's spirit, that we are going to go back to live the life that God has originally designed for us. So now let us look at these first eight verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally, then brothers, as we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that you have given to to Christians to be able to look at your word and be reminded of that, and also to, to be convicted by it, but also to understand it. So this is what we pray today. Here is a passage that speaks about your will for our lives. It's a passage that speaks about how we can please you. And may that be the the great desire of our heart. And may we not only hear these words and understand these words, but then with the Spirit's help, apply them from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Probably many of you can identify with what I'm about to share, that my life 
radically changed on the day that I was married. And as I stood there on the altar and my wife placed this wedding band on my finger, I was saying no to all of the young girls that I used to pursue. And I was saying yes to Melody from that day forward. I was pledging myself into a covenant, a permanent covenant. And from that moment forward, it was to be my aim not to seek my own pleasure, not just to please myself, but to actually please her first. And in doing so, I've learned over the years more and more how to do that. It's been my progressive pleasing. I've learned that when it comes to coffee, my wife loves her coffee, that she prefers some honey and some sweetener in it. When it comes to her chicken and steak on the grill, it must be very well done. And in those winter months, when she brings those ice toes into bed, and she rubs them up against my leg, and I realize that is a way that I can please her by letting her feet warm up. But you know something I've also learned over the years is that I don't talk to my wife like I would talk to my buddies. I really don't use sarcasm at all. I want to use my words to, to, to build her up. Now listen to me. Now, in the same way that a husband and wife's life changed at their wedding day, a Christian's life changed the day they became a Christian. It was no longer about you trying to please yourself. It was now about you seeking to please God. Again, not in order to be saved of your sins, because you were saved of your sins, now you wanted to please him. Look at what it says here in chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we're turning the corner now in our book. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk, and listen to this, and to please God. I mean, how many here this morning would say, I desire to please God with my life? I hope that everyone's arm would shoot up today. And if that is you, I've got some great news because this morning, and if the Lord wills, next Sunday morning, we're going to talk about that. What does it look like to have a life that pleases God? You'll notice the last part of verse 1, it says, just as you are doing that you do so more and more. This act of pleasing God, this desire to please God, is progressive. In the same way that I am learning every day how to please my wife more, we are to learn how to please God more. We are to get better at that more and more as we spend time in the Scriptures, as we spend time under the preaching, as we spend time in prayer. We want to get to know God better so that we can please God better. Let's look at what it says here in verses 2 and 3. For you know 
what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. These instructions were the ones that the Lord Jesus passed on to us. And then verse 3 says this, For this is the will of God. I mean, that is certainly one of the great questions of the Christian life, isn't it? What is God's will? And there are a few places in the New Testament where he makes it very clear what God's words, God's will is. And this is one of them. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. If you're following along in our outline, we please God when we obey God. I love it as we are going through our daily readings as a church family, how often I stand before you on a Sunday morning and say, this is exactly what we're reading in our daily readings. And we're seeing this in the book of Deuteronomy right now. As we please God, there is blessings that come. Secondly, we please God when we become like Jesus. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, this is just a a theological term. It's a church word that, that we need to preserve. All it means is to be set apart. The moment you entered into a covenant, the moment you became a Christian, God set you apart from the worldly life, the worldly living. And he said, I want to use you and I want to use your life. Another way of saying that is that we become more like Jesus. That when you became a Christian, God began a work in you and he will continue that work until the day he returns or the day you die. Philippians 1, verse 6. This is in attitude, this is in deeds, and this is in words. Well, how is it then, this is where we're going now, how is it that we please God, we please God through doing his will? Well, what is the will of God? It is a sanctification, okay? Well, what specifically does it look like to be sanctified? It might surprise you, What makes the top of that list? You see it here in the next part of verse 3. That you abstain from sexual immorality. One of the greatest, most precious gifts God has given to men and women, to husbands and wives, is physical intimacy. I mean, can I get an amen to that, right? He has. That, that, that is a wonderful gift that he has given to us. I remember in, in Proverbs chapter 5, rejoice in the wife of your youth. And, and this is in the context of physical intimacy. And so this is a gift that he, he has given to a husband and wife to experience, and, and it is a pleasurable one. But if we take that gift and we move it away from the marital relationship of a husband and wife, there are severe consequences to it. This past week is probably a typical week in April in Wisconsin. I don't know if your experience was like mine. I think it was Wednesday morning. I woke up, and I looked out, and I saw about an inch of snow. and immediately flooded me into depression, right? And so it was really cold in our house, and I did what I would do on any January morning. I I made a fire there in the fireplace, and it wasn't long, and there was a good roar going there. And 
And, and so on my left hand, I had a nice warm cup of coffee. And my right hand, I was taking in the Bible readings. And there was a blaze coming from the fireplace. And I found myself thanking God for fire. What a gift to have that fire as wave after wave of heat was coming from that firebox. And then as I thought for a moment, I thought, if that fire went either to the right or to the left, two feet it would burn some pine tongue and groove that has been in our house for over 30 years. It would go up in a moment's notice. And it would destroy virtually everything I have, maybe even my family. And it made me think as I was studying for this today that as fire is a great gift when it is contained in that firebox, so is the gift of physical intimacy when it is experienced in the marital relationship between a husband and wife. But once it is moved outside of that, the consequences can be catastrophic. Now, what sort of context is this 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 being written into? I think that's helpful for us to consider. What was this culture like during the first century? F.F. F. Bruce, who's a Bible teacher, answered that question. He said this, that a man, during this time there in Thessalonica, a man might have a mistress who could provide him also with the intellectual companionship. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine, while a casual gratification was readily available with a harlot. The function of his wife was to manage his household and to be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. Did you hear that? The culture at this time was so given over to the gift of physical intimacy being taken outside of the marital relationship that it is possible that a man there in Thessalonica during the first century would not only be married to a wife, but have at least three other women that he would visit with. In contrast, the Word of God comes clearly and speaks to us and says, if you have been saved and received the gospel, God has a design for you to rescue and recover that design through His Holy Spirit, and that is to abstain from that sort of lifestyle. I appreciate how one translation says this. This is J.B. Phillips. This is another way of saying 1 Thessalonians 4.3. He said, God's plan to make you holy, and that entails, first of all, a clean cut with sexual immorality. Now, the word abstain that is found in my translation may not be as clear or might not be as strong enough. I appreciate this idea of a clean cut When it comes to abstaining from experiencing this gift of physical intimacy outside of the confines of marriage, the language here is to avoid it and not to just dabble with it. If you brought up in the country and maybe you had a dog, then you had an experience similar to mine. One day our golden retriever went out and came back smelling like a skunk. And we might have said to our golden retriever, we told you not to chew on the neck of that skunk. We told you to avoid that skunk. 
And the gold retriever, if it could have talked, might have said, I did. I did avoid it. I, I, didn't, I didn't chew on it. But you were close enough that the spray went out. And now all of us are experiencing the consequences because you were close enough to it. And I think when it comes to sexual immorality, that illustration can be useful. We're not even to come close to it. In fact, I think it was Ephesians 5 that says, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Ephesians 5 verse 3. And when we're talking about this, we're not just speaking of the physical act itself. Quoting from the Heidelberg Catechism, in relation to this, in question 109, it says, paraphrasing a bit, God forbids all impure acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to impurity. Let me just say that again. God forbids all impure acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to impurity. Instead, the Hebrew writer said, let the marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So on one hand, it's stated negatively, and that is abstain. Don't participate in sexual immorality. Verse 4 states it positively. It says this, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So on one hand, don't do this, participate in sexual immorality. Instead, do this, use your bodies to honor, use your bodies for holiness. I think I had it this way in your outline. We please God when we are pure and use our bodies for honor and holiness. So let's just talk for a little bit now about what that might look like. Let's just, let's just work through the body ourselves, okay? Let's start. If we want to use our bodies for honor and for holiness, let's start with some body parts. Let's talk about the eyes for a moment. In Proverbs 20, verse 12 The scripture says, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. The Lord has given us eyes. And these eyes are to be used for honor and for holiness. But listen how we can use our eyes. What's what Jesus said in in Matthew chapter 5. He said, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We can use these eyes that are designed to honor and to to be holy, and we can use them for selfish purposes to please ourselves and violate what we are being forbidden not to do. To look at a woman, look at a man with lustful intent, that is not either, that's only, not only in person, but on a screen or a magazine. You know, here's a, Here's a testimony of a pastor that is far more experienced than me. This is his experience with this passage and this sin. This is Chuck Swindoll. He said, I'm going to warn you, this is a few paragraphs here. He says, I first preach a message on moral purity from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, 
in October 21st, 1984. I remember thinking, things can't get, can't get much worse here, can they? I never imagined I would one day live in a time when I would look back at 1984 with deep longing. Compared to now, those were the good old days. Since I first delivered that message on moral purity, internet pornography has begun eating away at our country and our congregations. Men, women, adolescents, and senior citizens, people from all walks of life, have succumbed or are at risk and more and becoming infected every single day. In the last decade of pastoral ministry, I've dealt with heartbreaking cases of moral disaster that would have only been seen on primetime tabloid television just 20 years ago. I'm not so much sickened as saddened. Without our knowing it, this problem could be eating away at our churches. And the scariest thing is this. We may not even know or realize the extensive damage it is causing Studies suggest that the majority of people in our churches have looked at, are looking at, or are addicted to internet pornography. The struggle is going on among those who volunteer in our churches. Chances are good that some of our full-time staff members, even some who faithfully serve in our boards, could be losing this secret battle. And while I'm mentioning this grim reality, let's not overlook our young adults, married and single, who provide instruction among our junior and senior high youth. These are the men and women responsible for being examples of holiness to our flock, for inspiring sexual purity among those they've been called to lead and teach. I shudder to imagine the ugly but very real possibility that some of our own elders or deacons leave our church meetings and go home to surf porn. Our youth leaders may be viewing it on their smartphones one moment, then using it to devise and read scripture to a small group of kids the next minute. Forget the red light district or the adult bookstore of the 80s. Pornography has forced its way into our homes via the internet. And with the always online presence of smartphones, we're carrying in our pockets a potential portal of porn 24-7. It's ruining marriages, destroying relationships, and harming and hurting the minds of the youth and body of Christ at large. You hardly need to be reminded that fallen pastors didn't suddenly fall. More often than not, pornography played a role in their downward spiral. The only answer to this moral plummet is holiness. In the 21st century, that word almost sounds archaic, like thou or ye or doth. Holiness conjures up many pictures in our minds, and we tend to cluster them in hushed chambers of monasteries, cathedrals, hooded monks, and mystics residing in silence. God, however, wants to unlock the wooden doors and open the stained glass windows of our thinking so His holiness can walk freely through every room of our lives. He longs for us to be holy, that is, pure, as He is holy. Yes, God is calling ordinary, dull people like you and me to become beacons of purity so that the hope will pierce through to those who are stumbling in the world's moral fog, a fog that seems to get only thicker with the passing of time. So we 
we look at our eyes. We say these eyes are designed for honor. Not to to gaze upon things that would cause us to sin. The psalmist said in 101 verse 3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. And this is a challenge, is it not? I mean, I have a couple of different email addresses. One of them is on Yahoo. And when I just go and and check my junk mail on Yahoo, there are not necessarily pornographic pictures, but certainly people that are not dressed appropriately. And I've got to navigate just to get to my email, just to check a news story. I have to go over here and, and can't look up at the upper corner of my screen. It is everywhere. So there's the eyes. Let us consider our feet. In Proverbs 5, sexual immorality or adultery is personified as a woman who is calling out to a man. And this is what Proverbs 5 verse 8 says, Keep your way far from her. and Do not go near the door of her house. So don't allow your feet to walk in the way of sexual immorality. In Proverbs 7, verse 22, this, this woman that is calling out, come and, and participate in this. All at once, if he follows her, he is like an ox that goes to the slaughter. The Bible says in 1 Peter, 2 Peter 2, verse 22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And like Joseph with Potiphar's wife, we are not to entertain these lustful appeals, but we are to flee from them. Like someone has given to you a a sack of poisonous snakes, you don't with curiosity say, hey, I wonder what's in this. Let me look at this. Let me investigate this. You flee from this. And I'm fully aware what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It is as if he is an ace marksman, an archer that is looking for opportunity to shoot these arrows into us to take you down as you lead your family, lead your ministry, or lead at work. He is looking to take us down. So there are the eyes. There are the feet. Well, how about the mind? We cannot be filling our mind with sensual images, stories, and innuendos. Our minds were created as a reservoir for God's truth. Did we not read just this morning in our reading for our scriptures that we are to take every thought captive to obey Christ? 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. That we are to have our minds transformed by the renewal of the word. And and the Bible says in Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. God has given us this body for holiness, for honor, not to use to please ourselves. How about the ears and how about the mouth? Am I the only one here that could be driving down the highway and and on the radio or walking into a convenience store and hear a song? 
And it's a song from my childhood or from my teen years and say, oh, I mean, that just feels good. I remember where I was when I heard that. I think I just want to linger here and listen to this. And then it's as if the Spirit of God says, why don't you listen to what they're actually saying, singing right there? And as I do, I'm like, wow, I didn't realize that that was in that song. And if I just stayed on that and listened to one song after another, it would not be long, and my heart would move away from purity to impurity. And so it's, it's ears, it's the things that we take in. It's, it's words that we subject ourselves to. It's, it's jokes as well. To, to be around at a workplace where someone is telling a dirty joke and just to, to, to allow that to go without checking it. But it's also the words that come out of our mouth. Listen to what Ephesians 5 verse 4 says. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. We would all agree, hey, you're not supposed to take God's name in vain. We're also not to have crude or coarse language come out of our mouth either. And I think it related to this, it could also be the words that come out of our mouth that could be flirtatious. It could be that we are so affectionate, maybe even overly affectionate, that when we talk, we might not even know this, but it's as if we are flirting and we might be sending mixed signals to another person. I'm not sure I see this so much here in the north, but when I went to school in the south, it wasn't all that unusual to have a southern belle come up and talk and just be so over the top and, and touch your arm and, oh, it's so great to see you. And, and I'm like, I'm engaged. I'm, I'm married. What are you, what are you doing here? It, it, we just need to be mindful of that. And as we move away from the body, one other thing that I would say is we're talking about this, and that would be clothes. As we're talking about having a body that is pure, that is set aside to honor God and and to be holy, I think it would be helpful for us just to consider for a moment the clothing that we wear. You might not believe me yet, but eventually it's going to get warm here. And uh, it'll be 55, 58 degrees, and we're going to want to be out there in shorts and T-shirts, right? But it's going to get a lot warmer than that, too. And so it's a good time, as we're just working through this passage, just to say, let's, let's consider the clothing we wear. Now, uh, this might surprise you as you look at me this morning and the way I'm dressed, uh, but I'm not a fashion designer at all, okay? Don't know anything about it. And I don't know who I am as a father of a bunch of boys to say anything about how women are to dress. But I do think it's helpful on occasion just to say there's, there's a wonderful thing called modesty. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul was speaking to the women and he said to them, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty. And self-control. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Now, it would be wonderful if the Bible provided for us a very clear dress code, list of do's and don'ts, but it doesn't. It provides some principles. And, I, and I'm not really a great authority to speak on this, but I can tell you, as a man, there's, there's two different categories that I can think of. One is, is too little. That there are 
body parts that need to be covered. And it's over here. It's over here. It's over here, right? We, we, we need to be careful to cover our, our bodies. The second area is too tight. I mean, it's possible that we could say, hey, I, I've, I'm covered, but if, if the clothing is too tight, the shape of a person's body is, is, is still very revealing. So all I would ask you to do is just to consider these things as, as the warmer temperatures are sure to come. And, and I think I would say this, and I think you would agree with me, that what a person wears while they are gardening, while they are sunning, while they are on the beach, is not fitting to wear when we gather for worship. We just need to be mindful of this. And, and I think for, for the most part, people don't always think about that, but once they are reminded of that, they're like, oh, well, well, of course. So here is my appeal. My appeal would be for dads and moms of those daughters, and it could certainly be with sons as well. It's just, just to think through that. What does it look like to be modest and, and address accordingly? Now, my wife tells me, that the styles are very difficult to buy clothes for. I don't know anything about that. You can't find a modest swimsuit. You can't find modest pants or outfit. But I, but I, I would just say, pray about that and, and see how the Lord would lead you in that. You know, of all the conversations that I get to have as a pastor, I would say way up here is having a conversation about sharing the gospel and reporting that someone has become a Christian or maybe that they're getting married or they've, they have an answer to prayer and then I would say somewhere about here and about 20 feet below that mark is a conversation that I have with a dad about the way that his daughter is dressed or, or someone in his family is dressed. And man, that is not one that I love having. And so why don't we use this opportunity to say, will you just, will you just pray about that and, and maybe do a little study on what does that look like for modesty well, how would the, the Lord lead you in that? I tell you who's really good at that is my wife. And you could ask her um, for some guidance. I think her mom and dad have trained her very, very well in that. One other thing then before we move this is we're considering the body used for holiness, the body used for honor. How about where we put that body? I'm just calling it the home. If you were to go home today, are there items within your house that would incite you, that would get you to think towards sexual immorality? Is there music? Is there images? Is there devices? Is there, is there pictures that would say, if these remain in my home, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to please God the way that we are learning here in First Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm just curious, just by a way of hands, how many of you in your Christian life have gone on occasion to look through your house and done a little cleanse and say, you know what, this should not be in our house because it does not draw me closer to God. How many of you would say that? It certainly has been for me. I've, I've had my share of fires. of just saying, this doesn't need to be here. This is not going to help me. I wanted you to see all those hands that go up and say, that is natural for us. But before I move away from the home, I would add one other caveat to that, it's possible that we could have someone that lives with us in the home that is not our husband and is not our wife. And as we are living with them, that sets us up 
for sexual immorality. To take that gift that God has given to us that we are to enjoy as a husband and a wife, to move it outside that and actually to have our, a, a life setting where we're living with someone who is not our husband or our wife and we are engaging on a gift that we are not to engage on unless we are married. And so from time to time, I'll have someone who's in that situation say, Chad, show me in the Bible where we can't be in that arrangement. And I say, you got your Bible with you? Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. That's the verse that's the main part of our passage today. This is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And we have seen at our church the unfolding of this in a marvelous way. Can you remember, it wasn't all that long ago when there was a couple that had come. They were in this situation and one of them said, I want to please God. And if that means I've got to change my living situation, I will do that. And a great inconvenience, a financial challenge for that person, did it anyway, moved out. And as she was doing that, God was doing a work on the other person over here as well, bringing that person to conviction and eventually saving that person. They said, now now that we're both saved, now let's do it right. And as a church family, we got to celebrate that. And it can happen. And it does happen. So as we consider these things, consider your body. Are you using it for God's glory? Are you using it for honor? Are you using it to please yourself? And then let's look at what verse 6 says. It says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things and we are told beforehand and solemnly warned you. Listen to this point I've got here. When we choose not to please God and engage in sexual immorality, there are consequences. Verse 6 tells us here a word of warning. There is an avenger. Please don't engage in this. Now, as a Christian, you may not have to answer for those sins because Jesus took them upon the cross for you, but you will reap what you sow. Before I was a pastor, I worked with students, mainly junior high and senior high students. And and as we would work with them, many of them were in trouble. In fact, they come from troubled homes, not all of them, but some of them were on a path that if something didn't change, they would end up in jail. And sometimes me and some other people take these students and we would go to a jail. We would go to a prison. And I can remember being on off of 172, the Green Bay Reformatory, walking in one day and taking some of these students with me. And when we got into the belly of this big prison, a couple of the inmates came out. And they said to these students, listen, we know where you're at. We know what you were involved in. Because when we were your age, we were in the same thing. And I'm just here to tell you that if you don't change... It won't be long, and you're going to be right here, right beside us. And I'm telling you, I wasn't one of those students, but walking in that prison and and being there with those inmates, that scared me. I could not wait to get out of there. And I'm, I'm quite sure that when I drove home, I certainly went the speed limit. But here's my point. 
if you have been in the Christian circles, if you've been in a Christian church long enough, you can think of some people that have not heeded this warning. And they could stand right here before you today and say, this is true. There are consequences to participating in this sin. In the same way that a fire that is no longer contained in a firebox, it's been moved out and now burning down someone's home, this sin can scorch your marriage, it can scorch your family, it can scorch your job, it can scorch all the possessions, virtually all the possessions you have. And my appeal to you today is don't play around with this. I believe that God this morning is warning us, don't mess around with this. You want to have a life that pleases God, don't you? Bring it out of the light. Confess it. Deal with this before it takes everything that you have. Verse 7 says this, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. God's not called you to this sort of life. He's called you to something different than that. A life that pleases God is a life that honors God with his or her body. And if you're like me, you're saying, this is too high of a standard. I cannot muster this up on my own energy, and that's why we have verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, listen, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Our efforts to please God will fall short. God has given us his Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit empowers us, this Holy Spirit guides us, and he enables us by the gospel to be able to recover God's design even for our purity. Now before I leave you this morning, what I don't want to do is just drop off a bomb in the middle of this auditorium and then let's do our benediction. So instead, let me give you a strategy to help. And it's not my strategy. If you have an outline, you'll see the back of it. It's a strategy that's presented by one pastor named John Piper, and it's an anthem, anthem acronym. So we'll look at each one of these letters. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but letter A, letter A stands for avoid. Avoid as much as possible and reasonable the sights and situations that arouse an unfitting desire. So if you are aware of something in your life that leads you to falling in this area, avoid it. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. A couple of years ago, as a family, we purchased a DVD player that that will take out the sensual scenes, it will take out the words, so that we can watch a movie and not be exposed to this. As a family, we've subscribed to Covenant Eyes, a filter that allows us to know that everything that we take on on the internet is going to be accountable for. And as a pastor, if you even looked at my phone right now to search on the internet, you would have to go through covenant eyes. When do we feel most susceptible to temptation to diagnose that? The N in this anthem is to say no to every lustful thought within five seconds. So those thoughts will come. 
And within five seconds, you will have to decide what will you do with it. Will you allow it to linger? And if you do, you will likely fall to that temptation. T stands for turn the mind forcibly towards Christ as a superior satisfaction. You have to turn from that temptation and say, I am going in this direction. I will not follow through with that temptation. I will seize what God's word says. I can think of times where I have been tempted in this area. And it's uh, as if to say, it's only a little bit. Well, what harm will it cause? And I can remember the passage there in Proverbs 7, verse 22, that says that if I engage in this, it's like I'm being led as an ox to the slaughter. And if I engage in this sin, this could cost me my marriage, this could cost me my boys, this could cost me my ministry, this can cost me everything. And as I'm waiting, I'm, I'm holding on to that awareness. It leads me to H. To hold the promise and the pleasure of Christ firmly in your mind until it pushes the other images out. So the idea is to wait. I'm not going to engage on that thought. I'm going to stay here until it leaves me. I'm going to hold the promise of Christ. And then we get to the E, which means enjoy a superior satisfaction. You know, if you are not cultivating a desire to know Christ, if you're not in the Word and praying and feeding your mind with this, this might be kind of foreign to you. So what steps are you taking to awaken this affection for Christ? Are you fighting for joy? Are you treasuring Christ more than sugar or more than sex? Listen to what Psalms 90 verse 14 says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice And be glad all our days. And then finally, M. Move into a useful activity away from idleness and other vulnerable behaviors. Listen to this sentence. Lust grows fast in the garden of leisure. So don't be slothful. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Get up and do something. Sweep a room, hammer a nail, write a letter, fix a faucet, and do it for Jesus' sake. You were made to manage and create. Christ died to make you zealous for good works. Displace deceitful lust with a passion for good works. Now that's a heavy message to bring to you today. I can't help but think that it's one that we have to hear And if you were there for our men's breakfast yesterday, it's a very similar message to when we heard for our men's breakfast. Don't you want to please God? Don't you want to do what God's will is? Use your body for purity. That's the message for today. You know, there's a great hymn. If you have a hymnal, you can look on with me. It's a... Hymn number 277, this is not behind us or behind me on the screen. It it just speaks about using our body for what God has intended. Listen to what these words say. Take my life and let it be consecrated. Verse 1, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands and let them move. 
at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my will, this is verse 4, and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. I mean, could you sing that? Is that your prayer? Could you walk through each one of those verses and say, that is true of me? If you have that hymnal on your lap, why don't you just look at that again as Miss Vonna plays and make that your prayer. Make that your prayer as you reflect on this message. Hymn 277, just look at that. Maybe those words would be your heart today and you just pray them back. Lord, may that be said of us that our bodies are a living sacrifice to you. Our eyes are to be used to honor. Our our words are to be used to to encourage and to speak truth to others. Our hands are to be used to serve and to work for you. Our feet are are to be used to go and to, to share others, to share with others. Our mind is to be a place where we just meditate and to think about scripture use our body may it be said of us that we pleased you when we fell down we asked for forgiveness your spirit empowered us to to know you better to please you more as the years went by in our lives may it be said that we could come and say take my life and let it be consecrated unto thee Why don't we sing this first verse together, okay?